All right. Well, if you have uh, any missing weeks of material, those should all be. There she is. Madison, great queso today. Good job. Good job. Madison duty. There's, there's missing, uh, if, you, if you have uh, any of the notes from previous weeks that you need, those should be uh, back there. And hopefully everybody has a week four in front of them. How are we doing? This is a lot. This is a lot of, whew, we're, we're, we're getting through a lot of material these five weeks. I hope that you're doing well. You, you're doing good. You look good. You keep coming back. We're making it. We're trudging through. That's awesome. Well, this is completely unrelated, but I got to show you something that I'm happy about right now. Come on. Look at there. Look at that guy. Look at that guy. This, is, uh, this was Shiloh's, uh, his first white tail. So that was pretty exciting. We were out this week. And so I don't know how that picture got there. It just happened to be in the presentation. So excited about that. Uh, let's do a little bit of review. And then I want to jump into jump into your questions. So uh, review, three key points from last week. So last week we did a theology of marriage. marriage. Very good. Theology of marriage. This week's going to be a theology on gender, but last week we were on marriage. So here's just some key takeaways from last week. Uh, when Jesus defines marriage, what does Jesus point back to? He points back to Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, when, so when Jesus um, answers the question about marriage, he grabs Genesis 1, 27 and Genesis 2, 23 and 24, and he uh, puts those two together, emphasizing uh, a couple of things. One of those uh, being uh, God's original design of marriage being between uh, a man and a woman. Um, that was one of our huge key points was not only from, uh, from Genesis, but then Jesus' reference back to Genesis. Number two, when scripture speaks of same-sex sexual relations, it is always Negative. So scripture is unified across the board um, in the way in which it addresses same-sex sexual relationships. And then our third point in the theology of marriage uh, was in reference to the history of the church. The entirety of the history of the church, there's been a global multi-denominational agreement on the definition of marriage. The only exclusion to that um, has been in the last couple of decades um, and in, only in the West and in a small uh, representation of, of denominations. And so um, anyway, that was some review from last week. I would encourage you, if you're just jumping in um, on, this, uh, on this study, we do have the podcast available. You just look up Fredonia Hill anywhere where you get your podcasts. And uh, right next to where you subscribe to Sweet Tea and Coffee, actually, is where, who knew we would be a podcast juggernaut, Blake, but here we are. Um, and so anyway, you can find it there. It, it, all the weeks are there and would help you just kind of uh, catch up. The notes are there as well, except for last week, you'll need to email us for a copy of those. But you guys had some really good questions, really, really good questions. I say that every week. Um, Emily helped me go through them. Man, just some great questions. We had a pile of feedback, so just really appreciate uh, all that you guys have done in terms of, of writing your thoughts and your questions. So I'm going to try to go through these. There's, a, there's about 10 of them that we were able to group together. And then I took the situational questions, the what ifs, the, the my friend uh, is in this situation, what, you know, those sorts of, of questions. And we're going to use those next week. So next week, the goal is going to be really, really, really practical. Now, how do we live this out? What does that look like in the situations that you guys are, are facing? So here's just some of your questions. Um, you, we talked about if we're not under law, but under a new covet, covenant, 
then, and, and we've got reference or prohibition of same-sex relationships in the law, but we're under the new covenant, then why, why, do, why does that uh, apply? Why is it, why is it uh, prohibited? Well, we got to understand there's a lot there, okay? Number one is that when we say that we're not under law, but under grace, what we're not saying is that the law doesn't matter and that the law is just thrown out. In fact, in, in uh, the Sermon on the Mount that we're going through, Jesus says the exact opposite thing. Jesus says that I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them, okay? So it's not, when we say we're not under the law, but un, under grace, we are not saying that the law doesn't matter. Jesus has fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law. And so when we, by faith, uh, trust him for salvation, we, by his account, also fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. He forgives us of our sin and calls us righteous based not on our own merit, but based on his grace and his grace alone. So we are, but so the law doesn't become extinct, it's fulfilled in Jesus. And actually, if you will read the New Testament closely, what you'll find is that Jesus uh, expounds on the law. A lot of Jesus' teaching is an expounding on the law, bringing the, uh, the wisdom of the law to bear in his current situation. And for the church, Paul does the exact same uh, thing. So it's under, under, good to understand um, the nature of the law um, and grace. And now, now, that said, what Jesus does is Jesus affirms, and Paul will do this as well, uh, affirms the prohibition of same-sex relationships that the law created. Jesus affirms that in his current time. Paul affirms that, uh, again, looking back to Jesus, back to the Old Testament for the church. So you've got consistency from law all the way through to Jesus and all the way uh, through and into the early church on uh, the prohibition of same-sex relationships. So um, anyway, that was a really good question. Someone said, it doesn't seem fair that someone who is exclusively attracted to the same sex doesn't get to engage in relationships. I'm going to make a leap here. That was your question. I'm going to make a leap here and assume that you mean um, that if somebody was saying that, that I'm exclusively, exclusively attracted to the same sex, it's not fair that, uh, that I don't get to participate in marriage, but, other, uh, but others do. Well, a couple of things that kind of in the argument are, are a bit flawed. I want to just point those out. Number one, that there, there's a hint there uh, in that question of sexual human relationships, particularly marriage, being essential to human flourishing. It's, it's in that question is, is kind of slipping in the idea that, if I, that I am somehow living a subhuman existence if I'm not in a marriage relationship, okay? And we have to be really careful of that. That's an idolatry of marriage that I said in large part, I think the church has, has perpetuated uh, some, uh, but marriage is not the pinnacle of human existence. It is not essential even to human flourishing. Marriage is a type of relationship. It's a significant type of relationship that God has designed and set aside for the purpose of, of showing off his covenant love for the church. But marriage is not required for any of us to flourish as human beings. So we have to be careful uh, connecting marriage and being in an intimate uh, union uh, to human flourishing. Those things don't go together um, in scripture. Uh, the other part there to answer that question, every single one of us in varying ways, and it's gonna differ for somebody that, uh, that is maybe 
um, attracted, uh, has same-sex attraction as it, was, as it would be to somebody that may, uh, may struggle with other desires of the flesh. But, the, but every single one of us, what is universal is that every single one of us in varying ways will have to submit our desires under the rule of Christ. And more than that, every single one of us will have to submit our sexual desires under the rule of uh, of Christ. And that is going to mean across the board for all of us that there are, going to be, uh, there are going to be elements of my life that just because desire is there does not justify action. Um, and so we need to split those things apart because there are oftentimes things that I desire that I have to say no to because they are not good for me according to, uh, according to scripture. And so we will all have to do that. Um, and so it's not that people who are not same-sex attracted don't have to go through that at all. It's just that that submission of desire might look different from person to person, but we all have to do it as part of following Jesus. That's what we're talking about when we talk about dying to ourself um, and submitting to our, um, sorry, submitting to to the spirit rather than submitting to uh, our, our flesh. Um, so, but, this, but here's the, the last part of that question I wanna address and you guys are like, I don't even remember the question anymore. You've been talking so long. But um, that, that doesn't mean, I'm not trying to minimize how difficult that would be. And I've listened to lots of different testimonies with people who struggle with same-sex attraction who have said, you know what? That for, for, for right now, um, the way that I can live out a, uh, the following of, of Jesus, and uh, even though I might struggle with this, uh, is in a, a life of celibacy. I'm just gonna, I am, I am not going to express this desire in a, uh, in a relationship. I'm gonna submit to, uh, to what uh, God says is good for me. And I'm not saying that that's not hard to do. Um, and I think on some level, every single one of us can talk about the challenge of submitting desire um, saying no to things that our flesh might say that we, that we want for the sake of following Jesus. And that's not an easy thing, regardless of, of what category the struggle exists in. And I would just say, my hope would be that the church could become more and more and more and more of a, of a place where somebody that was, um, that was living faithfully the call to Jesus than living into the sexual ethic that the, scripture, uh, that the scripture gives and denying themselves in such a way that they would say, I would rather be celibate and submit under, uh, under the command of scripture than submit to my own desires. I would hope that the church would be a place that champions that person. I, I would hope that the church would be a place that celebrates that decision, not just in our sexual relationships, but across the board. I mean, shouldn't we... That shouldn't be that be part of what we're doing in each other's lives is encouraging one another to, to follow Jesus and to submit our flesh um, and walk by the spirit. That, that, this should be a place where that is encouraged. Um, so not, not belittling the difficulty of it and hoping that the church can be a place that encourages uh, that sort of faithfulness. Okay, um, where can I find good research on the born this way argument? Whoo, good question. Okay, here's the... <laughs> I don't have a book for you. Um, I have a starting point. We've been talking, uh, I've been using the resource uh, for the Center of Faith and Sexuality. I've mentioned them every single week. I found an interview that uh, the founder of the Center of Faith and Sexuality, Dr. Preston Sprinkle, he does an interview with this lady named uh, Dr. Lisa Diamond. If you're interested in this sort of thing, write this down. Now, let me just say this, Dr. Lisa Diamond is not a Christian. 
Um, she would call herself a lesbian. She is not a Christian. Uh, she has no faith background. So I'm not, I'm not, so her worldview is not a biblical worldview. Preston Sprinkles is, and he interviews her. She is a, uh, she's a psychologist that has done lots and lots and lots of research and study um, into sexual orientation. And his interview with her is fascinating. Um, so if you are, want to dive more into that born, born that way argument, this is a great uh, spot to start. She has some interesting insight. And I think his questions uh, are really interesting as well because he's coming at it from a biblical worldview. So if that's kind of where you uh, are, are interested in digging in more, that's a good place to, uh, to start. Okay, looking at New Testament passages, it seems as if those in non-consensual relationships could be condemned. Is that right? So we talked last week about, uh, particularly for, for Paul, when Paul um, talks uh, in 1 Corinthians and in Romans and in 1 Timothy, the prohibition passages, Paul speaks in general terms to talk about same-sex relationships. And you know, the question th that this person is asking is, wait a minute, does that mean that in non-consensual sexual relationships, if they're same-sex relationships, are those relationships being condemned as well? I, I, I'm trying to make sure I understand the question. To be clear, the Bible absolutely does in several places uh, speak of and speak against non-consensual sexual relationships, whether same sex or not, okay? So the Bible, uh, the Bible clearly speaks to that and condemns non-consensual non Sexual relationships. You guys, I'm going to do this. Five weeks, I'm going to make it, okay? I'm going to get all my words right, okay? Um, it certainly does that. In the passages that we are talking about, uh, the, 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 from an affirming perspective, what people will try to argue is that the Bible, Paul didn't know anything about consensual same-sex relationships. And that's just categorically false, History shows that there was such thing as consensual same-sex relationships. There were also non-consensual same-sex relationships, but there were consensual same-sex relationships. Paul's use of his, the, his specific use of language in those prohibition passages is for the purpose of, of highlighting consensual same-sex relationships. He's not going narrow and just talking about non-consensual. He's intending to talk about relationships where there is mutuality and there are, there are consensual uh, sexual relationships. I hope I've understood that question well, uh, but, but there we go. Okay. It seems like the Bible comes down harder on men for same-sex sin. Is that true? Or should we read man as a, a substitute word for humans in some context? It is true that sometimes the Bible does that when, when you read man or mankind. Uh, it's not talking about male. It's talking about humanity. Okay, that's true. Not necessarily. I don't think that's the case in any of the passages uh, that we have looked up. And I wouldn't say that the Bible comes down harder on men per se. In fact, there's a lot of different places where, and, and it's even in some of the prohibition passages in Romans 1, I'm just drawing from memory, but in Romans uh, 1, Paul talks about men exchanging natural relations with men and women doing the same. Um, so I don't think so. I don't think that the, that the Bible is harder on men in same-sex relationships at, at the, than, on, than on women. But one thing that you might be picking up and is true is that 
all of scripture is written in a male-dominated society. And so you're picking some of that language, uh, some of that language up. And that may be why uh, you, you, you might go, man, is he harder on men um, or, or, or not? And uh, so anyway, that's, that's a shot at that. But no, I don't, it's, it's equal. And Paul mentions male and female um, in his arguments. What's your opinion on Matt Walsh's What is a Woman? I have none. I have not seen it. Okay, that was easy. What about, uh, I, I, it's, it shows up all the time. I've not seen it. I don't know. Is it thumbs up, thumbs down? Should I see it? Is it I don't know. Nope, don't vote. Never mind. We won't do votes in here. What about polygamy? Was it cultural? Is it justifiable? Okay, this is kind of in the pornography discussion. Can't cover everything in the category of sexuality, but here's the deal. Um, and I think, I, th- I think I know kind of why this comes up because it's related to, obviously, to marriage. Uh, but polygamy is never in Scripture put forward as an appropriate or good form of marriage in Scripture. Okay, so Scripture never says polygamy, right? We never get the thumbs up uh, from Scripture uh, for polygamy. I don't know, your, laugh- your awkward laughter, I don't know if you're disappointed or what are you? Uh, <laughs> I don't know, that was weird when you guys laughed about that. Okay. <laughs> It is true, it is true. Now you're red, I don't know what's wrong with you. Uh, it is true that there are characters in scripture. Most, most famously, I would say, we probably think of Solomon. You guys, is that maybe who is in your mind? We think about Solomon. There are characters in scripture and even um, within Israel who engage in polygamy. And certainly culturally, the, the, uh, the nations surrounding um, Israel, pagan nations surrounding Israel, it was, it was a prominent practice. But scripture never justifies it, though it occurs. Scripture never justifies it or, or says that it is an appropriate uh, form of marriage. And then um, once you get into the New Testament, you're going, to be, you're going to hear Paul, for example, talking about qualifications for, uh, for church leaders. And he's, he's specifically going to say a husband of one wife. I mean, he, and, he's, and he's specifically uh, addressing some of the polygamous tendencies in uh, surrounding cultures. So, um, yeah, that's a good question. Okay. This was about the language uh, on the notes. I don't even know if I got to this part yet or in that last week, but why can't we use the term homosexual if the scripture uses it? Um, well, you can use it. You can certainly use it. And the Bible uses it. And it is correct. It is a correct term. What I'm trying to do when I give you these terms, and we're going to do it in the gender conversation. What I'm trying to do when I give you these terms is not tell you what are right and wrong words. I'm just trying to clue you in to the, to the, the language being used in the conversation today. What do these words mean today? Because these are words you're going to hear on the news. These are words you're going to hear. What's the guy's name that, we're, that we saw? John Stewart is going to, he's got a big thing right now. Have you seen this? The problem with John Stewart, it's a new deal on, Apple, uh, on Apple's platform. And his very first conversation is all about gender. It's a whole thing. And I thought about having John in and us having a conversation, but he, he said no. And um, the point is, these are words you're going to hear. So the word homosexual is, yes, it's used in scripture, um, and it is, a, it is an accurate term. It's just kind of in, for today's language, you're not gonna hear that much. And certainly if you're in a conversation um, with, with someone who, um, who identifies as gay and you use that word, immediately what they're gonna think is, I don't know about you. <laughs> you don't really know what you're talking about, right? Um, it's, it's just, it's niche language and it's just helpful to know. So it's not a wrong word. The Bible doesn't use it incorrectly. Just trying to help you with language that's being used today. Why do we talk so much about sexual sin? 
If the Bible emphasizes other sin equally, shouldn't we? We should, and I hope we do. Man, I hope that we do. Um, so yeah, for sure, you're totally right about that. Sexual sin is not the only sin um, in, in scripture. So I hope that if you've been around here long, um, that everybody's got a good dose of all sorts of varieties of sin that we struggle with and need to be thinking about. But, but listen, the Bible places a huge emphasis on sexuality and particularly on sexual sin. Why is that? Well, because God built um, sexual intimacy for a sacred purpose. It has a high, high calling and purpose. It is not any less than to show how um, and be a signpost to the love that Jesus has for the church. And so God's not gonna mess around with that. And Paul particularly, we get into the letters to churches, Paul is gonna take super seriously when he hears about the churches that he has planted, that he is encouraging, and he hears about them coming outside of the box as it, term, uh, as it relates to sexuality, he is gonna clamp down on that because his concern is for the witness of the church. If you are behaving in this way, what does it say about who God is and about who we are called to be? So he's taking it really, really seriously and we should too. What about sex outside of marriage? Even if it is consensual and, uh, and between male and uh, female. Well, this is, this is easy. What the Bible does is the Bible gives us a very narrow, specific definition of where sex belongs, okay? And we've, we've gone through that. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, we've gone through that. That sex comes as a piece of the marriage union. So there's covenant. Uh, husband will leave, his, the husband and wife, they leave their family of origin. They hold fast to one another. Now you've got covenant. You've got a promise to one another. And in that covenant, and as a consummation of that covenant, you have sexual intimacy. Why? Well, a few reasons. Number one, that is the most vulnerable that any two people can be with one another. That is total and complete human to human vulnerability. And the only place that that should happen is inside of the, the protection of covenant promise, okay? That till death do us part, for richer, for poorer, that whole thing that we say is a covenant, it's a promise. And that's where sex belongs in the safety of covenant promise. But sex is not separate from childbearing. And that's a weird thing that's happened in the sexual revolution. As we've, like, we've gone, okay, sex is out over here. We've disconnected it from bearing children. God also intended for children to be born inside of covenant union of marriage. Children were meant to be raised in that environment, okay? So that's why sex is placed where it is. So what about, what about, what about sex outside of marriage? Yeah, it's, it's dangerous, Okay, that's number one, it's dangerous. And, and what I mean by dangerous is, I mean, I mean, you are giving yourself to one another in an act that is a binding agent, supposed to be a binding agent between the two of you outside of any promise. It's a conditional thing and it's outside of any promise. And so there is no safety of covenant promise. So it is dangerous in that way. And also, it is, it is uh, separate from what God intended for sex to actually 
be. So it's a deforming of what God intended to be as an expression of who he is and the intimate union that he has with his, with his people. So we're taking something that God said is meant to put on this display and we're using it for our own, uh, for our own desires. And, and I, can I just throw this in here too? It's just a bonus. All right. Paul Moore said it's okay. I'm just going to put him on it. So uh, listen, if you are, if you're living together, guys, you are writing a prescription for sexual intimacy. And I hear this all the time. We do a lot of premarital counseling, lots and lots of premarital counseling. And the convenience of cohabitation and all the different reasons why, you know, we, we justify that in our culture and it's totally normal in our culture and blah, 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 blah. But, but here's the deal. You are setting yourself up. You're setting yourself up um, to step into something that God says is not okay and that God is preserving for your good and his glory for uh, the marriage uh, relationship. So stop. And if you need a place to stay, if you are living together and don't want to live together anymore, you can move in with me and, and just come on. So there it is. There's my offer. If you don't have a place to stay, if that literally you're going to die, if you guys move out, right, you got a place with me. All right. I tell Lynn, when we do that in premarital counseling, I t- I, that's, why, that's why I tell the couple every single time. It's like, and if your only excuse is we are literally doing this for survival, it's like, we'll put Shiloh in the girl's room, he's sleeping in the floor, then you can move right up there. And they always seem to find a way. It just, it's a... Okay. Thanks, Paul Moore, for the bonus. Yeah, I appreciate you letting me do that. All right. Uh, would we allow a gay couple to teach at our church? This has got a few layers in it. First of all, simple answer, No. Here's why. Um, in almost all cases here, teaching requires membership. Membership requires agreement with our church doctrines and beliefs. And our church holds to the historically Christian view of, uh, of marriage. And so for someone to even get to a point where they're, uh, where they're teaching, they would, have to, uh, they would have to deal with that relationship. And, uh, and so, so, so no, that situation uh, I can't imagine would, uh, would ever would ever occur. Now in, in, yeah, that's good for this week. Okay. All right. Is that good? That's all the questions, man. I told you there were some good ones. Who wants to stand up here and answer them next week? All right, George. Okay. All right. Let's get into this week, but let's pray. Oh my goodness, Lord, we need you. These are complex issues and they involve people that we love and people that we care about. Um, and, th- and at the same time, there's all sorts of culture wars going on and we need to know what we believe and why we believe it. And we need to know your will for our lives. We need to know the truth. And we know that the only person that can help us to understand the truth is the Holy Spirit. And so Holy Spirit, we invite you in this evening. We pray that you would open our eyes to the truth of the word, that you would enlighten our hearts uh, to, to God, to what it is that you are teaching us, what it, what it is that you have for us. Would you give us strength and courage in this conversation? And, uh, and God, give us wisdom as we love our neighbor um, and love one another. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's do this. So we're gonna jump into gender, okay? You guys ready? This is, this is gonna be fun, okay? Here's some guardrails before we jump into uh, gender. The current conversation uh, regarding gender, this is number one, is really complex and at the same time, really simple. We're gonna get to the simplicity of it, but there's also a lot of complexities. Here's why it's complex. Because in any given situation, you could be talking about a whole host of biological factors uh, that are in play 
and a whole host of emotional um, and psychological factors that need to be thought through and considered. So here's all I'm saying. Let's not be a bull in a china cabinet. Let's come into this conversation uh, with some patience, with some wisdom, and a commitment to not just oversimplify things, okay? I think you will find that this is simpler than maybe you think, uh, but at the same time, we need patience and wisdom as we jump into the conversation. So we're gonna do some clarifying terms. Now, I am not saying that I agree with all these definitions. Let's get this just out at, in the, <laughs> at, the, at the beginning here. I'm simply telling you what words mean today. You are going to hear these words. That's all I'm trying to communicate to you, okay? All right, here we go. This is the first one, and this is really important for the rest of the study. You got the first two definitions. One is sex and one is gender. Guess what? Before the 1970s, those words were synonyms. They're not synonyms anymore. What people are talking about when they use the word sex is they're talking about biology. So it's a physical and biological dimension of being male and female, okay? That's sex. Gender means something different. Gender is talking about the psychological, social, and cultural aspects of being male or female, okay? So you see how those things are are, are split. It can be really confusing. If you don't split those up in your mind, it can be really confusing. That happens after 1970. It didn't used to be that way, but that's what words mean today. Gender and identity experience. This is who you identify and experience life as. This is what you'll often hear people talk about as the, an internal sense of self. You ought to be screaming dualism. You ought to already just know. Dualism, 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 okay? All right, that's gender identity experience. Gender expression, the masculine or feminine ways you express yourself. Gender expression has a lot to do with gender stereotypes. We're gonna get to gender, gender stereotypes here in just a minute, but notice the word masculine and feminine in terms of ways of expressing ourselves. How do I know what's masculine or feminine? Where do I look? Well, where do I look? Gender stereotypes, okay? So those two things are gonna be related. Uh, gender role, how you relate to and adopt cultural expectations of maleness and femaleness. This is really closely related to uh, gender, uh, gender stereotypes, okay? So how you relate to, adopt cultural, that's really important, cultural expectations, maleness and femaleness. Gender dysphoria, the experience of having a psychological and emotional identity as either male or female, and that your uh, psychological and emotional identity doesn't correspond to biological uh, sex. This is a condition, and it's important to emphasize that this is a, this is a condition um, and that often leads to the experience of distress. Now, you're gonna see this word gender dysphoria used in a lot of cases where it's not actually, I think I'm saying this right to say clinical gender dysphoria. It gets used as an umbrella term, but it doesn't actually mean that. It is in its nature trying to refer to um, a very specific psychological um, experience. Okay, transgender. This is another umbrella sort of term for the many ways in which people might experience and or present and express or live out their gender identities differently from people whose sense of gender identity is congruent with their biological sex, okay? That's a, that's a lot, okay? But that's what transgender means. Intersex. This is another one that's really, really important. You're gonna hear this one used um, and it's often gonna be used to try and uh, prove what's often referred to as a third gender, okay? So intersex, someone who is born with a condition that does not allow for clear identification being male 
or female, okay? That's what, that's what that word uh, intersex means. Okay, good, we got our terms? <laughs> got your head around all that? Good, all right. You guys hang in there, we're moving fast. Some statistics. Now, th this is where, okay, we just did our terms. Keep those in your head because this is gonna be really important. What is gender dysphoria? Remember, gender dysphoria is a psychological condition. This is something that gets diagnosed, okay? Now look at the percentages, 0 0.005, there's a range, 0 0.005 to 0.014% of people experience gender dysphoria. So what that means is it is not common. You tracking with that? The actual diagnosis of gender dysphoria is not common at all, 0.005% of people. However, 0.6% of people identify as transgender. You're gonna start to see some building blocks here that are not gonna make much sense when it comes to math, okay? 12% of millennials identify as transgender or gender nonconforming, meaning don't quite fit into um, either uh, category. Now, this study's been critiqued and that number may be closer to 6%. Still, you've got between six and 12% of millennials who identify as transgender. Now, here we go, check this one out. 27% of Californian youth, 27% of kids in California from 13 to 18 um, identify as gender nonconforming or neither completely male or female. Okay, okay. so those, that, those first four statistics, look at, look at the shift there. We go from 0.005% of a gender dysphoria um, diagnosis to 27%. What factor is in play that would cause those numbers to look like that? Anybody thinking critically? Culture, it's great, culture. This is a big deal, okay? It's a big deal. We're gonna get to that. Good. Whoever said that? Gold star. All right. 50% of, of millennials, raise your hand if you're a millennial in this room. No shade. No shade. Okay, it's all right. Some say I'm on the back end of it. Blake doesn't believe it, but whatever. We still are, Blake. It's all right. It's okay. He didn't raise his hand. 50% of millennials believe that gender is not binary. When we talk about binary, we're talking about either male or female. Most, well, 50% of millennials believe that gender exists on a spectrum, okay? We're gonna talk about the spectrum in just a second. 90%, this is where we get into people. This is some serious stuff, okay? It's all about statistics, arguments, culture, blah, 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 blah. Let's, let's take a sober look at what I'm about to read. 90% of people who commit suicide have an untreated mental illness. 90%. So addressing mental illness... Um, has a lot to do with the rate of suicide, okay? 40% of people who identify as transgender attempt or commit suicide. 40%. That's a huge number, okay? So is this a serious topic? The mistake we would make is we would brush it off as culture wars, not take it seriously. This is serious. This is impacting people's lives, regardless of the influences that are exerting themselves over individuals. The point is, this is still a serious, serious thing that we need to take, we need to take seriously. So what are the takeaways? You see the first one, culture plays a massive role in the way in which someone relates to gender. 
Um, on the surface, it is almost impossible. You sit down with somebody, it is almost impossible to know. You, you are not gonna know whether someone is suffering, they're that 0.005% or they've been influenced by, uh, by culture, whatever is going on. You're not gonna know the difference. Um, and so regardless of the reasons why somebody might be struggling, uh, these are real and they can be life-threatening. And the people need the church uh, to be a safe place where they are welcome, loved, and can be honest about what they're wrestling with. This is back to our grace and truth, uh, our grace and truth model, okay? Um, so that just kind of gives you a statistical perspective. But there's two major questions as we jump into theology of gender. There's two major questions that we need to answer. First is, are male and female the only two sexes, Okay. That's a, that's a huge topic of conversation. That is a lot of what the introductory episode on that John Stewart show that, that I was talking about, uh, I've only made it a little bit of the way through, but that's a huge part of the, of the question. Um, user uh, caution, whatever, parental advisory, he curses a lot, okay? So just uh, be ready for that. Okay, uh, letter B, can someone be a gender different from their biological sex? We need to answer those two questions. What does the Bible say about those two questions? Are male and female the only two sexes? And can someone um, be a gender different from their biological sex? Meaning, is it appropriate to separate sex and gender? Are those synonyms or are they different things? We need to answer those questions. All right, let's go to, where are we going, friends? We're headed to Genesis. That's right, you, are, you know the rule. All right, Genesis chapter one. Let's take that first question. Are male and female the only two sexes? Now listen, take a deep breath, okay? I'm gonna move really fast through this. Here's the reason why. I wanna get to the part where we're gonna talk about uh, understanding the spectrum of male to female. I wanna draw that out for us. And lots of the material that I'm about to reference, we covered in detail in week one. Week one, we talked about the theology of the body, Okay, and we talked about dualism and that conversation looms large right here. So I'm not gonna reteach week one, but if you're going, man, that was really fast, really encourage you to go back to week one. But let's just look at a theology of gender here, okay? Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Look at what God says. Man is intended to be in our image. So we are image bearers. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Now look, male and female, he created them. So the first thing that we learn there from Genesis 1, 26 through 27 is that we, are, uh, we reflect God's image as sexed, human beings. So our biological differences matter and they're designed and intentional. They're designed by God and they're part of being uniquely male, being uniquely female is part of me bearing God's image. God built us specifically for the purposes that he had for us. If we're to bear his image and God makes us male and female, it is for the purpose of bearing his image. You understand what I'm, what I'm saying there? Okay. Genesis 1, if you read Genesis 1, I referenced this last week. It's a really interesting uh, layout. It's, almost, it's really uh, uh, cool to see how the author puts things that are uh, harmonious and yet different 
from one another. So we've got land, uh, we've got sea, we've got the two lights, we've got the sun and the moon. And these are things that are similar, but are different. There's harmony in their differences. And we get kind of to the end of that. There's all these differences uh, throughout that section. And then we get to the end of that, the climax of those things that have harmony, but are different is the creation of male and female. We're supposed to see male and female inside of that pattern in Genesis chapter one. And yet they are unique as male and female. And then uh, letter C on your next page there, at the conclusion of Genesis one, what does God step back from it all and say? This is very good. And you guys have been here around here long, you know what that means. That means as God intended it to be harmonious with God and with one another, it means this is right to be enjoyed, perfect and good. That's what that very good means. Now, that's great. That's Genesis. But what about Jesus? What did Jesus say? Well, Jesus uh, happens to have been there uh, when that all went down in Genesis. According to the book of John, he was there. Um, and so, but, but here's what Jesus says. Again, when Jesus in Matthew 19 is asked about marriage, um, I, I think this is really cool. If you weren't here last week, I'll show you this again. Jesus answers the question and he quotes Genesis 1, 27 right here, where he says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. That's Genesis 1.27. The reason why that's important is because Genesis 1.27 is a really specific um, articulation of, uh, of sex difference, male and female, really specific. Then Jesus keeps the syntactical link. You proud of that, Sheila Cooey, syntactical link? Okay. Therefore, he keeps therefore uh, and says, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So Jesus keeps uh, sex difference, uh, that explicit statement of sex difference in Genesis 1, 27, and then quotes Genesis 2, 23 and 24, 23 through 26, I have to look, you have to check me. But the, the part about marriage, bringing those two ideas together as Jesus explains, um, Jesus explains marriage. So that's uh, super, super important. Okay. Paul, this is really, this is really cool. Not a passage that you typically go to, I don't think, but here's what Paul's talking about. Paul, he, he has a long explanation in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 about the resurrection. Paul wants us to know about the resurrection and he wants us to know specifically that the resurrection is a physical thing. And he's talking about the natural body, the body that is sown, he says is sown in dishonor, will be raised in glory, a body that will be like Jesus. And so he's, he's giving us a really robust picture of the resurrection. But right here, tucked right in the middle of it, look what he says. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for, for fish. And then he talks about the resurrection. If there's a natural body, there's a spiritual body. He's talking about how we will, be, we will be without blemish in the resurrection, be like Jesus. But what is that one kind for humans? What's he referring to? What's he, what's he linking back to? First of all, first of all, what Paul's doing, do you see his theology of the body? Does the body matter? Yes. Yeah. The body is essential to being human. Being human means having a body, just like being an animal means having a body, the body of an animal, like being a bird has the body of being a bird, right? So Paul sees the body as a uh, inextricable part of being a human being. 
But what else is he doing? What is he linking back to? One kind for humans. He's linking back all the way to Genesis, God's design for the human body. And what do we discover in the book of Genesis, God's design for the human body, that God made humanity as male and female. And Paul says, this is just, it's, it's wide open. It's obvious that the human body being male and female, God's in design is crucial and carries over into the resurrection. Uh, so he's, he's saying this in his discussion on, um, on the resurrection. So Paul holds on to sexed human bodies as essential components of, of being human. Finally, uh, letter F there, Jesus was raised a male. Um, and in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, it says in the resurrection, we will be like him. Think about the bookends of the Bible. And this is really interesting. The, the Bible opens, Genesis 1 and 2. And there are sexed human creatures, uh, male and female, in harmonious relationship with God and all of creation. And that is the same way that the Bible ends. There is a restored and a redeemed creation with human bodies being raised, recreated from the dust in which they returned to, resurrected, to be with him and like him, harmonious relationship with God and harmonious relationship in the new heavens and, uh, and the new earth. So the bookends of the Bible have male and female in harmony with God and in harmony with one another and the rest of, uh, of creation. Okay, so that's that first part. Again, go back to, please go back to uh, week one for more of an in-depth look of the theology of the body. Let's answer the question, can someone be different from their, someone's gender, sorry, be different from their biological sex? Okay, if you're, if you're looking to the Bible to answer that question specifically, you're not gonna find an answer. You wanna know why you're not gonna find an answer? You're not gonna find the Bible saying, actually, let's talk about the difference between sex and gender. <laughs> Why won't you find it? Because the Bible has no category for separating those two things. There is not one single instance in scripture where there is even the conception of tearing those two things apart because the Bible is not a dualistic document. The Bible is scripture. And when we talk about the, the biblical worldview, the biblical worldview is not one which places a physical self over here and a real self in here. Those ideas were floating around, particularly in Greco-Roman philosophy. That's when that really starts to, to take a lot of root and gain a lot of momentum. But that idea of splitting those two things up is not in the Bible. The Bible simply does not allow for the, uh, the separation of a true self and a physical self and somehow seeing those things as not, uh, as not working uh, together. So the Bible just doesn't even have, uh, have that worldview. It cannot agree with that uh, worldview. The Bible tells us that the, the body is an essential part of who we are and is inseparable from the rest of us and even goes so far as to say that without a body, we're not even human. Uh, that it is, it's, not even, it's not even a human being if we, don't have, uh, if we don't have a body. And we talked about in week one, um, that the body, the human body begins to form at conception. And so at conception, we've got, uh, we've got a full human being and the body is not separate from, uh, from that. So anyway, anyway, go back to session one for a little bit more of that. Now, scripture does speak to, you can go to this le uh, letter D, scripture does talk about instances where 
uh, uh, gender boundaries are crossed, okay? Now, and, and, and every time, I've listed those passages below, and you can certainly go through um, and, and look at those, several of those we've already, we've already looked at. And it's very much the same as our conversation last week. Anytime scripture speaks of the crossing of gender boundaries, meaning men behaving like women and women behaving like men, that's, what, that's the general way of speaking of, of crossing those gender boundaries. Uh, scripture always speaks negatively of that. Okay, always speaks negatively. So, so scripture, what scripture wants to hold together is that the body is essential as part of being human, part of being an image bearer. And God created the body, uh, the human bodies to be male and female. And when those two things, when we seek to come outside of what we are and cross into male being female, female being male, the Bible always says, no, 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 no. Wait, hold on. Those categories matter. Those categories are uh, are really important, okay? So that's a quick, uh, again, week one, week one, week one. That's a quick theology of both of those questions. We need to talk about gender stereotypes because here's where it gets messy, okay? And here's where I think we have some work to do within, uh, within the church. So as I said, in the 1970s, gender and sex get taken apart from one another. Gender becomes to mean um, a, a more of an internal identification. Sex is related to related to biology. And what happens is gender becomes uh, something that's conceived of on a spectrum. Okay, I'm gonna draw this out from you, for you. You guys excited? I'm gonna do a little draw in here. Let's see if this works. We've got male. Can you guys see that okay? And we've got female, okay? Now remember, we're talking about, we're talking about gender. So in the 70s, those get split apart. We're specifically talking about gender. And gender is said to exist on a spectrum, okay? Um, and a spectrum with the two ends, so these two parts here, where do we get these fixed ends? I said this earlier, I gave you a breadcrumb. Where do we get those two fixed ends? How do we know what those ends are? Where do we get that information? What's that? No, no, culture, good. C cultural what? Ends with areotypes, good? You guys are sharp. All right, so, so this is really, really, really important. So these, fixed, these, these ends of the spectrum are determined based on cultural stereotypes. What does it mean to be male in 2022 in America? What does it mean to be female in, 20, in 2022 in America, right? Okay, you're gonna see this is gonna get really slippery here in just a, sec in a second, okay? But that's the, those are the two ends. And someone might say, well, I'm not, I'm not that. I'm not that that male stereotype, you know, I've used, uh, I've, uh, sarcastically, I've used John Wayne uh, in sermons before. Um, if you're mad about that now, I've already preached that. So, uh, you know, I, I got love for John Wayne. But, but we, we think about John Wayne, we go, okay, well, I don't fit, I'm not that. So here's what culture tells you. Oh, well, it's, a, it's okay. That's what a man is. That just means you're not quite a man. You know, that just means that you don't, you're not on that end. You're somewhere in here, maybe. You're somewhere in here, maybe. You're somewhere in here, maybe. You're somewhere in here, maybe, okay? Or for a female, you can, do the, you can do the opposite thing. And here's what we label that. You see? And so we put gender on a stick. Now, again, 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 reminder, this is, this is not a discussion about biology. We haven't even thought about biology yet, okay? So in this conversation, you have to throw biology out, Okay? Which is, 
really problematic, but you have to, <laughs> you have to throw biology out and then you have to come here and you have to establish your fixed ends as really narrow cultural stereotypes. And if you don't fit in there, then you're something other than what culture says is male or female. So you must be, you know, um, and, and then the la there's all sorts of labels. Those, those, that, uh, transgender is a umbrella term. I'm using um, umbrella term on purpose because there's a lot of variety um, in there, but there's, and there's other names that people might use to describe themselves. You guys track in with the way that, with the way that that works. Okay. Um, what's one of the, what's one of the problems? There's a lot. What's one of the problems? One of the problems is how many of you know that gender stereotypes are not fixed? They change. <laughs> And what, what being a male was or is in America in 2022, first of all, is not even what the rest of the world would necessarily say is being a male. Um, and second of all, doesn't even hold up in our own history for really that long. Um, if you go down to uh, letter triple I, number one, I don't even know how to say that. Um, listen to this, this quote, uh, three, thank you. Somebody said three, yeah. <laughs> Listen, there's a lot of complexity here. Counting. All right. All right, check this out. <laughs> Easy. I don't know. College students are a little feisty in here today. All right. Look, look at this quote. I love this. In pre-industrial pre societies, most work, it's talking, about, it's talking about right here, right here. Uh, most work was done on the family farm uh, or in home industries where the husband and wife worked side by side. Work was uh, not the father's job. It was a family industry. Uh, as a result, women were involved uh, in economically productive labor while men were more, far more involved in raising and educating children than most are today. What changed all this was the Industrial Revolution. It took work out of the home and that seemingly simple change dramatically altered gender roles. So again, I can just go back to before the Industrial Revolution, which in the scale of history is not that long. The gender stereotypes, even just for right here in Nacogdoches, would have been completely different. It would have looked totally uh, different. There certainly could be some similarities, but it would have looked really different. So the problem with making your fixed ends gender stereotypes is guess what? That's not really a fixed end. It's relative. It's relative to whatever the culture wants to come up with uh, in the time uh, to say is male or, uh, or female. Okay. So what does, what does the Bible say? We're going to do more drawing. Biblically, male and female in the Bible is not referring to an internal sense of self. That's not what the Bible has in mind when it says uh, male and female, nor does the Bible have in mind narrow gender stereotypes. And listen, church, we need to hear this. Because I'm just gonna tell you, we've done a poor job with this filter. And there's a lot of gender stereotypes, cultural gender stereotypes that we perpetuate right here in this house, okay? So we need to really think about this. We need to have our filter, uh, our filter up. So, Biblically speaking, male and female are not referring to an internal sense of self. Male and female are referring to sex difference in human beings. We see that in Genesis chapter two, verse 23. So here's what we see in scripture. We've got male and we've got female. And Adam says in Genesis two, this is at last what? Can you guys quote it? Bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. What do we have happening there? We've got distinctly male and distinctly female, but this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, okay? So she is the same as him in two major categories. Number one, she is, uh, they are both what? Human. 
Number two, they are both image bearers, okay? Right here. It's going to take me a minute. Have you guys voted? You'll be doing a lot of this. All right. Those boxes, I think they're getting bigger because it's like, oh, my God. Okay. All right. So they're different, distinctly different. And that difference is talking about sex um, difference. Okay, there, again, there's no conception of gender being something separate. They're the same in that they're both human and they're both image bearers. Now, Scripture gives definition and clarity regarding certain aspects of what it is to be male and what it is to be female, okay? Some of that is in, uh, is in role, okay? And each time that the Bible talks about the different roles that men have versus women, what it's talking about is those roles as it relates to the glorifying of God's character. Remember, men and women are image bearers. And so the things that are uniquely male and the things that are uniquely female both serve in unique ways to glorify distinct characteristics of God, okay? This is really, really, really important. I want to show you something. Um, Let's see, I don't want to take away this drawing, but I think it's going to. Okay, let me just draw one more thing. Here's what else the Bible does. Each one of these stars represents a varied and distinct personality type. There's the John Waynes. All right, there's the John Waynes, there's the creatives, there's everything in between. That's just language I've used in a sermon before. I'm bringing it back. The Bible gives huge variety in expression in terms of personality type within what it means to be male and within what it means to be female. You've got a massive massive scale of personality types expressed in biblical men and a massive scale of personality types expressed in biblical women. The Bible is actually not narrow in the expression of personality types at all and allows for lots of variety within male and within female. And Paul picks this up in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and says, yeah, and all that variety, that's given by God. God does that on purpose and he knits it all together. Gifts and um, the ways that we have been, uh, each been constructed and uniquely gifted by God and it's for God's glory. The variety is for God's glory, okay? So, but an example of the way in which Oh man, I'm way behind. Here we go. This will be good. What is uniquely male and uniquely female always is glorifying to God. Okay, look at this. This is cool. Isaiah 66, 13. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. Okay, now the Bible says that the mother role is for who? Men or women? Easy. Okay, good. Okay, it's for women, right? The mother role is for women, exclusively, exclusively, exclusively for women. Only women can be mom, but in being mom, now that's, a, that's narrow, right? Only women can be mom. Men can't be mom. Only women can be mom. And in that uniqueness in which women only can play, what does that unique thing do? It sets off and puts on display an attribute of God. What does God compare himself to? A mother comforting. God says, just like, just like the picture I gave you in the mother giving comfort to her child, I'm like that to you. 
God identifies with that unique characteristic of what it means to be mother. In the same way, look, as a father shows compassion to his children. Now, again, this is, this is a moment where the Bible gives specific role to specific gender. Men are fathers, women are mothers. But in each of those, it's setting off and putting on display a characteristic of God as a father shows compassion to his children. So when fathers show compassion to their children, it's a sign. It's a picture of what? The Lord's compassion to those who fear him. So back to our picture, if you remember, that what God does in setting male and female apart, God intends to do that. They unique in their own ways, bear God's image and bring glory and highlight certain aspects of who, uh, who he is. And there are some ways in which only women can show off the mother love that God has for his people. And there are ways in which only men can show off the father love that God has for his children. And, th- and there's plenty other uh, examples. So scripture allows for a broad expression of personality within the categories of male and female. And often those broad expressions are actually confronting some of our cultural stereotypes, okay? And I wanna give you some examples. Look at, look at uh, three to be sarcastic, okay? Look at number three. Look at all six of these examples, okay? King David. Was King David a man when he killed Goliath? Or was he a man when he played his harp and wrote poetry? Uh-huh. Which one of these, which one, which one of those would he be a man in in our culture? Only one. He would only be a man killing Goliath. That harp thing, I don't know. That's more on the, you know, Right? Love these guys, tabernacle guys. Man, God calls these two guys, and you, you deal with their names, um, to do what? To sow. <laughs> to sew fine garments. And for who? Other men. Priests. Right? Were they men? Were they less men because they were doing that? No. They also cut stone and cut stones and carved wood, but I mean, just just throwing that in there. I'm just kidding. Just a joke. Deborah judged and led Israel. That's very feminine, right? Right? You guys, you picking this up, right? So, the, so the Bible is giving broad expression to both male and and female. Lydia, entrepreneur, influential businesswoman. Jacob was a quiet man who dwelt in tents. Jesus weeps over Jerusalem and says that I long to gather my people like a mother hen gathers her chicks. Man, in our culture, if he would have said that, we'd have gone, that's a little soft, right? I mean, I don't know, that's a little, (laughs) right? And why would we have said that in the church? Because what's happened to us, y'all? What has happened to us? We've adopted a lot of this mess. We've adopted a lot of these gender stereotypes. And here's why that's really, really, really dangerous. You can see under there where it says the problem. We have kind of acquiesced to these modern gender uh, and cultural uh, stereotypes for men and women. And we hold to, here's what we do. We say there's only male and female. So we hold to the theology of only male and female, the binary uh, nature of male and female. And that's right. That's good theology, right? But then we also adopt narrow gender stereotypes as the only acceptable expressions of those binary, uh, uh, binary male and uh, gender, right? 
And what happens? You see what happens? You see where this is going? Somebody walks in, into a church, not this church, because this has never happened here, but somebody walks into a church and there is a, the cultural stereotype of femininity is on big display. And they go, I just don't fit that really well. I don't, I'm not down for all the, I don't know. I should probably do men because I'm, I'm going to get myself in a whole lot of trouble. Let me go back. <laughs> you know, um, we've got, we've got the, the, the red meat cookout and the, uh, and we, the ax throwing and shooting guns and spitting and I don't know, whatever else. <laughs> Help me, somebody. <laughs> it's like, what? yeah, and, we, and it's called a men's retreat, you know, <laughs> right? And they go, I don't want, you know, I don't want to do any of that. And then here's what happens. Look at, in all seriousness, what happens? What, what's the conclusion? There's no place for me here. There's no place for me here because th if that's what it means to be a man and they say that there's only, there's only male and female and the only, the only element of manhood that's being propped up is this really narrow version, I don't fit. They're, what's gonna happen? They're gonna walk out of here and they're gonna go find answers. The question is, where, then where do I belong? And you wanna know who's waiting? The cultural narrative is waiting to say, it's okay. That just means that, you're, that the way that you were biologically created doesn't match with who you really are and your real self, you're really more, you're really more of a female. And that lie slips right in there and convinces, but see, but, but the point is that what's being offered is belonging. We'll just, here's what's, here's what's, what's happening really is you're, you're just, there's just an incongruence with your biology and with your, and with your gender, um, and you can belong here. And isn't that sad? That really it's all about a place to belong and wrestle with the complexity of what it means when God says that he forms us in uh, our innermost parts, that in our mother's womb, he puts us together. And every single one of us are really trying to figure out what in the world that looks like and what that means and how we're obedient to Jesus. And like, that's it's complex. Shouldn't this be the place where we should be able to wrestle that out and figure that out? But because the church has oftentimes adopted these very narrow gender stereotypes, we have excluded ourselves as a place from which someone could say, I'm a man and I'm gonna write poetry and play the harp. And the church has, has, has not traditionally been a place that celebrates that as an authentic expression of manhood. You see what I'm saying? We've kind of gone, oh, I don't know about that one. You know, okay, you tracking with me? So we've got to do a better, we've got to do a better job. So how do we proceed? Okay, I'm going to finish, I promise. How do we proceed? Well, conversations around gender require a lot of attention to detail. We got to stop, listen to somebody long enough to really understand where someone's coming from. Um, one size fits all approaches and doing the culture wars things not typically going to be helpful in a, in a ministry situation or any, uh, by the way. Um, for the church, I think what we need to be doing, we need to do a really good job of repairing the ways in which we've we got to get our filter back. We got to repair the ways in which we've allowed these extra biblical and cultural stereotypes to uh, inform our view of what it means to be male and female. I think we should question uh, question that. So, men, 
Um, our next men's retreat is going to be a sewing and harp <laughs> playing retreat. And we'll, no, I'm just, I, I'm, I'm, I'm being silly to make a point. I hope you see what it is. But I think we've just kind of, not really on purpose, but we've just kind of slowly and over time adopted these things. And I think we need to really stop uh, and, and vet that a little bit, think it through a little bit, get a little bit better filter on how we are uh, potentially reinforcing uh, what may not even be biblical in the first place, okay? So that's, I think we need to do that work. At the same time, we've, we've got to hold to a scripturally grounded uh, theology of the body and of, uh, of gender. We've got we've to hold on to uh, the binary of male and female um, because, it, I mean, it's being challenged all over the place. Um, but the reality is that this was part of God's good design. And we've got to hold on to that, know why we believe what we believe. We need to be grounded in scripture um, and what it says about male and female, um, and then be aware of the varying degrees in which uh, those gender stereotypes have infiltrated the church. And then be humble and patient in our interactions, okay? It's just gonna take a lot of patience. What's it gonna take? Grace and truth. Okay, um, I wanna finish with this quote again by Nancy Piercy. And by the way, I'm gonna show you these in just a second. It's just some good books for, for this conversation. Here's what she says, Christians must respond by offering a positive biblical worldview that affirms the value of the body and the unity of the human being. At the same time, Christians should be the first in line to nurture and support kids who quote unquote don't fit in by affirming the diversity of gifts and temperaments within the body of Christ. Uh, I think that's really well said, really well said. So um, that's, where we're gonna, that's where we're gonna stop. Again, I want you to submit your responses, submit your questions and feedback. Before you do that, here's a couple of resources that I've, that I've used. And I'll say that I have, not, I have not read most of this one. I've skimmed a lot of it, uh, but not read most of it. This is called God and the Transgender Debate by Andrew T. Walker. It comes Really, really, really high recommended if you wanna uh, do some more reading. This one is great for a ton of things. I've referenced this one before. I just quoted from it, Nancy R. Piercy, called Love Thy Body. If you wanna come uh, check these out afterwards, you can just look at them. Um, and then this one's really good. Mark uh, Yarhouse is called Understanding Gender Dysphoria. And um, he's written on a lot of, uh, a lot of other uh, topics relating to uh, faith and sexuality. So he's got a lot of really good resources, but this one particularly um, in the gender conversation has been really, really good. Mark Yarhouse, Understanding Gender Dysphoria. Okay, um, so submit your responses. Next week, we're gonna tackle your what ifs, your scenarios. I think it's gonna be really, really good. Maybe hear a little bit of testimony, um, but, uh, but excited to close this up next week. And here's what we're gonna do. I've, oh, I'm calling on, I've been calling, randomly calling on people to pray. Lindsay, where are you at? Where are you at? All right, Lindsay, I'm gonna call on you, my wife, my sweet wife, uh, to pray. And, uh, and then we will be dismissed for you to submit the fishbowls in the back. Submit online through the QR code or on your paper. Lindsay, would you?